All right. Thanks for joining us this Sunday. We uh, turned three, I guess, the church in April, and so this is our fourth July 4th weekend. We've done Q&A Sunday every July 4th weekend since we began. Typically, it's just general stuff about God, Bible, Scripture, given the recent events of everything that's been going on in our country. We thought this particular Sunday, we do things a little bit different and have a conversation focused on race and injustice and a biblical response. So what you can do, we're going to try to get through as many questions as possible. We've only got one service today, so we can go as long as we want. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, That number will be on the screen the whole time, 919-800-0525. Uh, go ahead, and you can text those in. They will be completely anonymous, and so it's not like anyone's going to know what you're asking. And I would encourage you to ask honest questions. Uh, this is the time you might have a question about something and you're afraid to ask it because you don't want to offend, Or, but this is what this is for. So I would encourage you to have a question, to, to ask it, and we'll answer it as honestly as we can. Um, I'll say this, and then I'll introduce the panel, and then we'll get into it. Uh, our apprenticeship to Jesus or our discipleship to Jesus is measured by how well we love and not by how much we know. And so you will, likely all of us in this room will hear something today that we maybe disagree with or don't, do not like. But if followers of Jesus, as we just sang about, if we can't love one another and learn from one another, then what are we doing? Now, New City Church is awesome. You guys are awesome. So I don't doubt that that will, that, that will happen here. But just know that it's okay for us to disagree. It's okay for us to not like what somebody says and give them grace because they don't know these questions either. So they're answering <laughs> on top of their head. Um, but it's going to be, I'll just say, this is not like a somber thing. This is going to be a good time for us to learn and to grow one another. So let me, with one another, introduce the panel, um, and then we'll get into it. My name's Dylan. If you're new with us, I'm the pastor here at New City. I'm so th- grateful that you would spend your morning here with us. Uh, Jason Staples is a uh, professor at New- NC State. Assistant teaching professor, yes. I don't even know. Let's see if this is all here. Here we go. We're going to fix it. Hold on. There we go. So... Um, he got his PhD from Carolina, so you know you might want to take his answers with a grain of salt this morning. It's funny because I've taught at Carolina, Duke, and NC State, so wherever your allegiance is. I also taught at Wake Forest, so, <laughs> wow, and at Florida State, so I've got I've got almost go. half the ACC covered. And your uh, <laughs> and your PhD is in ancient Mediterranean religions. My uh, my area is early Judaism and early Christianity. So, so that's yeah, that's the smartest my person in the room here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> uh, Russell McCutcheon, he is planting Reconciliation Church here in the Raleigh area. Um, if you're part of New City, you thought we had it bad moving into this new build, brand new building in March. They're trying to launch this fall, so good luck to that. Um, now, we were going to have Russell come in and preach for us before we shut everything down, so we're glad to have him here with us today to share a little bit uh, with us. And uh, finally, we have Melissa. If you guys call New City Church home, you probably know Melissa. She's part of our family here. And she didn't tell me this, but I know this is to be true. It takes a lot of courage for all of them to be up here, but particularly someone who, this is their own church, to say things that might make us uncomfortable. And so thank you, Melissa, for doing that on our behalf. So, all right. That first question. Let's go. <laughs> question number one. All right. How can we make our church more welcoming to all races? What we'll do is maybe two of the panelists will answer each question so that we can kind of keep things growing, or th- keep things going. But number one, how can we make our church more welcoming to all races? Let's start off big. I guess, Melissa, we'll start with you since this is your church. So. All right. Um, so how many people in this room have been to a church where they're the only person who looked like them? One, two, a, a few people. Um, so that is a weird experience, right? There, I'm not going to I'm not going to fix that on it, with a there's no mission statement. There's no level of like friendly waving that makes it not weird 
the first time you walk into a space and you're the only person who looks like you. Um, and so then your intention matters when that happens, right? So one, there are lots of things that we do at New City that I think shows our intention. So if you look at our Facebook posts, if you look at our videos, you see people of different colors. I, I don't think I've ever seen um, something where it was like, everybody in this, this image or everybody in this whole video is white. Um, and that is a step that says, hey, we don't want our church to only ever look one way. We, you are welcome. Um, our welcome team is awesome. They, they welcome you when you, you enter the door. But one thing that I would really um, encourage people to consider, especially because you are at home and services are on video, look, like, take a Sunday um, and do two services. Don't, don't skip our service. Um, take a Sunday and look at a service that doesn't look like your normal service. So what does the music look like? Um, what are the announcements like? What is the tone? And then think about, okay, what are the things that maybe I would want to, you know, mention to Dylan as, hey, this would be interesting for us to try. Um, it's not, not everything is going to stick. Um, but if you look at what qualifies as a, a multi-ethnic church, which I think is, is 85% is one race and then 15% is the other, that 15% is like still gonna have some awkward Sundays. Uh, but there are lots of things you can do in the interim with those intentions. And, and I think the way that you approach people, I mean, I've, this has never been an issue that I've seen at, at New City, but making sure that, hey, we are as inviting to people who look totally different than us, who have a totally different experience than we do, um, as we do to the people that like, oh man, that looks exactly like my college roommate. And so I feel super, uh, comfortable with them. Uh, that assumes that you liked your college roommate more than I liked my exactly college roommate. <laughs> awesome. Russell? I'll stay in line with the question. Um, a mist in the pulpit becomes a fog in the pew. Whatever your leadership is, the people are going to be. Um, you first have to have, in my estimation, you got to have a diverse staff, but not tokens, not Sammy Davis Jr. with the Rat Pack. Um, you got to have, you got to have diverse staff. And dare I say this? In not saying the churches have to change, but to change a culture, would a person who pastors from a dominant culture setting be willing to follow the leadership of minority? and give him the keys and allow his vision to thrive and flourish. Not only that, but your elders need to be diverse. Um, I mean, that's very, uh, I mean, that's, that's small. Because what we're talking about here, I think we have a, a fetish right now. We want to be multi-ethnic. And I think that's good because of all the things that's happening in the world. Like we, when I was young, you didn't see police killings. You didn't have social media. Now we see it. It's always been happening, but now we just see it, and it's throwing us off. Like, what do we do with that? So we either got to explain it away, or we got to come up with some other answer to this, but, but I see something here. And so now we're talking about, as followers of Christ, bringing who I am into a space where 
I want to be diverse. I don't want to be like that person who killed or that person like the KKK. I'm not that, so I must be one who welcomes the other. But the question is, does my life really reflect it, right? And so I want to come into church, but the church, because even in multi-ethnic churches in America, most of them function like dominant culture churches. And so now how did you begin to change the culture? I think if you're willing to be uncomfortable, really uncomfortable, I would say in this kind of setting where we're talking about welcoming all races, I think it's time for those in dominant culture, and I'm specifically speaking to white people, are you willing to lay down your rights and allow, and I, and I don't want to give the caveat, say the other, because minorities are human beings made in the very image of God. How are you willing now to get behind and follow their leadership as they are pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ and make much of him to the ends of the earth until the end of time? We can accept it for this first question. We'll have all three. Jason. So the first thing, when I look at this, about making our church more welcoming to all races, one of the first things that comes to my mind is we, we need to be careful not to define the church as what happens on Sunday. Like having, thinking about it as how can we get more people of different colors and different appearances to be there on Sunday? That's not really the aim. And I mean, yeah, we want that. But at the same point, being the church involves serving. And I think the first place does have to get to, you have to have leadership that's going to be diverse in all sorts of different ways to get that going. The next thing, though, is ultimately your church is going to look like the people you serve. So it starts with where you're, where you're pouring your service when you actually leave the, ser- the, the, the church service that day. So who are you serving the other six days of the week? That's going to be what your church is going to look like. So if, you're, if your church is in suburbia and you're serving a, you know, a 90% white area, guess what? You're going to look 90% white, 95% white. But if your church is willing to get uncomfortable and reach out and serve local schools that are uh, maybe majority non-white, guess what? You're going to get people that are like, hey, you know, we, we got... They, they, they did this outreach here. I'm curious. I want to see what's going on there. And then they may join in the service as well those other six days. That is a big part of how you build not just a diverse-looking group on Sundays so that the leadership can look out and be like, man, we're finally starting to look like a mixed group. That's great. But the question is, are we looking like, are we serving as a mixed community? And if you, and the people you serve are the people that you're ultimately your community is going to look like. Good. All right, next question. Uh, what is the most biblical way to respond to a coworker who now sees you as part of the problem because you're a Caucasian? All right, Russell. <laughs> I just asked the question, so. Just throw me in that fire. <laughs> The most biblical way to respond to a coworker who now sees you as part of the problem because you're Caucasian. The first thing I would say is welcome their response. Don't run from it. 
the, the easiest thing to do, I, I would say, and, and I'm going to reference some books sometime, but one great book, I think, uh, gets at this, uh, Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility. Uh, when she talks about this book, she talks about, and she, this is a white woman who has a PhD in whiteness studies. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> you don't want to know. Uh, yeah. So, so, but she talked about when a white person's, um, when the equilibrium gets thrown off, when they become fragile, it's easy for them to run, uh, to get it back. Now, I, I think it's, the reason I say that, I think to stay into that, to stay in that response and engage it. Engage it, right, to see like, why are they thinking that? But what, one of the things I think this shows is that I'm willing to sit in hard things. I'm, I'm willing to be right there. Now, I may disagree with you, and I'm not saying you got to agree with them, but to, to dis you could disagree, but stay there and begin to ask other questions. And then to do some examination and be like, okay, they see this. Um, ask them, why do you see it like that? Tell me, explain more, explain why. Do you think that I'm a part of the problem because I'm Caucasian? Now, I would say this, and I was thinking about, there was a question that was skipped, but it's okay, you don't have to go back to it. I guess you can peel back different layers here, but there are a lot of my, let me say, I'm gonna just speak like this, African-American cults, right? They exist because they push back against the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. And so because of that narrative, they would look at a white person and say, see, you benefit from this system. You are a part of the problem. Now, they may not even know you or even know your story, but they see the overall meta-narrative of the atrocities that happened on this land to look at you and say, you are the problem. Don't run. Don't run. And don't say you are a lie, blah, 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 and get out the way because then you would only substantiate what they've said. And so I guess the easy answer to that is don't, don't run from it, engage them. Melissa? Um, my first question in response to this, I have lots of questions, uh, is what is your relationship with, with your coworkers, right? Uh, I had, uh, so we, my, my work is going through this, as I imagine many of your works are going through this, and so we have this new safe space discussion thing where all the black people get to have a call. And I initially thought that was real crazy until it happened, and then people are sharing things where I was like, oh, turns out we need a call. Um, and so one of the, one of my coworkers said that a white coworker reached out to her and, and said, how are you doing? And was really thoughtful. And she was like, oh, this is somebody who I can, I don't know her super well, but man, I feel safe with. And then they had a follow-up call and she said, you know, I just get so, the, the uh, white coworker said, you know, I just get so frustrated when people talk about privilege because that you know, I grew up poor and I don't have any privilege and, and so I wish that people wouldn't get stuck in that. And the black coworker instantly was like, oh, I now know where the line is, right? So we can, we can talk, you care about me as a person, but as soon as this involves talking about like bigger systemic issues, you're not on board. And she said, the weirdly, she's like, Melissa, what do you do? Well, I, one, I don't, I don't know, I'm not an expert at this, but I said, I, I would tell the person, 
I, I don't agree with that. I, I do think there is such a thing as, as privilege, but we don't have to tackle it today. I appreciate you calling me, and uh, I, I got to run. And I said, wait, give yourself time. And so if you are the, the white coworker in that conversation, one, I wouldn't press hard on the gas of things like, if you're not there with, with privilege or systemic racism, don't bring that up. Like, you don't have to bring that into the conversation. Um, but also, like, build the relationship. Because as you have, as you deepen your knowledge of that person and that person deepens their knowledge of you, you're going to be able to have better, harder conversations. Um, if you are anticipating that the first time you call a black coworker because you're like, oh, I care about that person, and I think this is the right thing to do, it's a hard moment that they're going to tell you their whole life story and every time that they've experienced racism at work or in life, that's like a that's a really big ask. So I think the the biblical way starts with being in relation, like Jesus is in relationship with you know, person after person we see in the Bible, he, he acknowledges their humanity, um, he knows their story, and I think that makes us better as Christians when we're, we are trying to tackle hard things like this, is, is taking the time to get to know the coworker um, before you dive in. Thanks. Next one. What does it look like to love someone who is racist or has different views than you? Jason, you want to start us off? You asked, do I want to? Um, <laughs> you know, I think the first thing is, I'm going to take the second part first. So someone who has different views than you. If you're only around people who have the same views as you, you must be a very lonely person. And if you aren't aware of what other people have, where other people differ with you, then that must mean that you're not listening. So that's the first thing, is that we all, if we're going to be in relationship with people, relationships are, there's always going to be a give and take. There's always going to be stuff where there's going to be some level of disagreement. So the, in that sense, loving someone who dis, has different views than you doesn't look a whole lot different than someone who shares a lot of views with you, because everybody in some sense has that. It gets harder when all of a sudden you have someone who is racist or you know, who's overtly racist. So that, that's something also that's worth... I think we'll probably get more into this down, down the line in the sense of it's one thing to talk about racism in a systemic sense, right? That we, we need to, if anything, right now, that probably needs to be more of the discussion than the question of personal animus towards people of another race, which is what most people think, or at least most white people tend to think is racism. Well, I'm not racist because I don't hate people of a different skin color. But... That, and, and honestly, people who actually actively hate people of a different skin color tend to be prejudiced. I do think that's diminishing in our society, but the structural factors are still there, and those aren't disappearing. And there's actively be, there are people who actively resist those disappearing. So there's two level, levels on which someone can be a participant or can be racist or a participant in racism in that sense. So thinking about the, the personal side, someone who's actively who's actively uh, prejudiced against people of, of a different race, the only thing that you can really do is continue to love them the way that you would anybody else, except that if, if something comes out of their mouth or something comes out of the way that they act that testifies to that, that's where, as a friend, you're responsible to say, look, this is not, this is not right. 
And, and so at that point, and this is the thing, it has to be consistent, right? When you hear someone say, say something that is just, that, that's prejudicial, that is, uh, that is racist in, in that way, it's our responsibility as part of the body of Christ to say, okay, so what, and, and I think one of, the, one of the things to think about here is it's usually best to ask questions to call out the, the problems. So instead of saying, hey, dude, that's racist, you're going to get somebody's guard up. The, the best thing to do is to, is to start thinking about what questions can I ask this person to make them, to force them to think about what underlies the way that they're, that they're thinking about this problem, the way that they're, the way that they're thinking about their, their neighbor, about their brother, about their sister. And if, we can, if you can do that and get them and start asking those questions and say, well, why, why do you think that? And, 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 you know, you notice Jesus in the Gospels uses questions a lot. And he wins debates by asking the question that people can't answer without getting really uncomfortable. We should, if, if we're going to be a part of these, these conversations, if we're going to love people who have different views than us, but we're confident that the Lord has given us the right way to think about certain things, then that means that we shouldn't be the ones that are uncomfortable at that moment. Right? That means that we should be in a position where we can ask the question to say, you should be feeling uncomfortable about this. I'm going to ask that question that's going to make you feel uncomfortable. And by doing that, you're able to love them in a, in a non-threatening way, but hopefully steer them to think a little bit differently. But I think it's really compl complex. And in some cases, you really can't be, like if someone's going to insist on being racist and living that way, at some point, you can't be friends with that person. You can't hang out with that person. You can't, that's, there is a point where you, you kind of have to cut yourself off from that person in that respect, because otherwise, that it, it bleeds out, and so you know, I, I don't think there's a simple solution to that. But those are just a few things that, that come to my mind. That's good. Which one of you guys want it? All right, Russell, go for it. <laughs> I'll choose you. Uh, this is not going to be a, a good answer, honestly. Um, Again, as a pastor, as a Christian, I know I'm called to love my neighbor as myself, hands down. And I want to follow that biblical mandate because Jesus says they're going to know uh, you by your love for, for, for one another. They're going to know you're my disciple. But to be honest with you, someone that I'm around, they got a racist view, honestly, and this ain't right. I, just, I don't want to be around you. Uh, that's a lot with that in my own personal story, which I'm not going to uh, just give all that, but I just don't want to be around this person because um, with, race, uh, uh, with racism comes power. Power and racism go together. I am a black man in America that when I walk out, when I wake up every morning, my wife and I know this, and we all, I have to think about every step I'm going to take, every, all the clothes I'm going to put on, we have an 18-year-old who works, who's driving. We got to think about all of that. Do you get home? Because we don't want to be another Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, or George Floyd. This, it's just honest. And so it, when a person, so my personal feelings, this may not be right, but if I'm around someone with racist views, I'm probably going to use a four-letter word, and I'm going to leave. Because I have to process and deal with and go repent because honestly of my heart, 
Because I, it's not that I want to hate, but I'm saying, I like, God, God, I want to flex. Like, I want to feel like I have power here. Um, but I know I can't. So the easiest thing for me to do is to move myself. But when I, now, that's, that's my personal. But if I lift higher in that, um, the other way is to, to love someone is to lovingly challenge them. Like, no, I challenge that. And I could go into a whole lot of like, no, that's, that's racist. That's not racist. Let me show you how that's racist, right? Uh, but how do you know? Number one, I live it. Um, and then this look at the historicity of this country, right? And so I think the other way for just for me as a black man is to be is to stand there and challenge and not be afraid of um, any blowback, not be like the pastors that wrote letters to Dr. King when he was in jail. Just slow down. Don't say anything. It's gonna naturally happen. Have, how long have we been saying that? And it still hasn't. I think. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know if I did something. Um, yeah, I, I, I just think, man, I, I think we got to be, I don't want to use the word aggressive, but we have to be forthright now in this, in, in, when we have this stuff. And I would say this to those of you here, uh, my white brothers and sisters. You got to risk relationships here. Even when it comes to family, you got to risk it when you hear it. If, if, if grandmama been saying some racist things for years, but you like a banana pudding, <laughs> when you hear it, you be like, I might not be able to have a banana pudding anymore. My grandma. Get the recipe. Just get the recipe. That's it. <laughs> so it may not be the best, but that's, that's, yeah. that's my thought. I want to add one more thing to this. It, I think it's important that the white people here and, and elsewhere, that we understand that it's not incumbent on, minor, on minorities, it's not incumbent on black people to end racism, right? The people who, whose responsibility that is more than anybody else is the majority, right? So if we're going to look to, to the black people next to us and say, Okay, so how are you going to handle the rate? Then we're looking to the wrong people because the people that need to handle this are the people who are in those families, who are in, who are in the same workplaces, and who are... It's the white people who have to actually step forward and do a lot of this work alongside the black, uh, black brothers and sisters. Otherwise, it doesn't change. Awesome. Next question. For those of us who don't see racism up close often, how have you personally experienced it? So we'll, listen, we'll hear from Russell and Melissa on this one. So maybe just a story or two. I'm sure you could, you could answer a lot. <laughs> this could take a long time, but. Yeah, um, man, I'm just, let me just say this. Um, I'll say about the past four or five years for my family and I, it's been very jolting, a lot of pain, a lot of tears. You can go all the way back to Trayvon, but the one that impacted me the most was Philando, Philando Castile. Seeing him get killed the way he got killed, and then, he, then his life leaves him. The reason I mentioned Philando because 
we, my wife and I had our son in a private Christian school. We have not experienced racism the way we have, like we did at this private Christian school in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I was ready to blow some stuff up. My wife normally calls me Martin Luther King, you know, nonviolent, but I got Malcolm. Um, and I would say this, and I think, and I hopefully don't lead to any other questions, but the reason why we continue to deal with racism, and I'm saying we, minorities, is because um, the narrative of white supremacy has never been dealt with. It never has. Um, White supremacy is what started this country. How did you come to a land and discover it? People are already here. And we don't even talk about Native Americans. We don't even really include them in our conversations because we don't threw them on reservations and just threw them some coins, some money. But just be quiet, stay on those reservations. Um, you steal a people from their land to build this country. White people could be indentured servants for, you know, even at this, at this country started, but you had a limit on how long you could serve, not black people. You were in servitude in perpetuity, you and your children. So again, it's this narrative, because that's, again, it, it points to this question. Um, that's how I experience it. I experience it, we experience it every day. Okay, Abe Lincoln, thinking that he wasn't a racist, he totally was, but he abolishes um, the slave trade. And, and does away with slavery. But the narrative is still there. In comes Brother Jim Crow. Now you're segregated. You got to drink in different water fountains. Um, you, you got sundown towns, and you can't, like in some counties in the early days, like if you were caught after 6 p.m., the sun going down, there's lynching. Jim Crow lynching and all this. Okay, but now you got the civil rights, civil rights movement. You deal away with, do away with Jim Crow, but now you got the new Jim Crow. Mass incarceration. Look at how the prison systems are filled up. And this impacts me greatly because my father, who just died, was a prisoner for over 20 years. Over 20 years, no rehabilitation. Died while he was in prison. Right? And so now, personally, like, who, what, what is the threat? What is the greatest threat to society? It's the black man between 5'8 and 6'8, 150 pounds to 250 pounds, wearing a hoodie. That's so general that anybody fits the bill. That's why a white person can pick up the phone and says, a black man, like the woman Amy in Central Park. She played the car because she knew it. I'm going to call the police and tell them this black man is bothering me. You're supposed to have your dog on a leash in Central Park, but you're going to pull that card. So that's how I experience it every single day. Huh. This is one of those questions that, uh, in general, don't make your black friends. One, if you only have one black friend, this is a lot of my white friends, don't call them during this, like, month period and be like, tell me all the times you've experienced racism. If we've never talked about racism, it's because, A, I don't want to talk about it with you. Um, probably because you've said stuff in the past that told me we shouldn't have this conversation. 
when you do, it is exhausting. So uh, it's possible that I'll get back to you in like two weeks and you should be okay with that because if you only have one black friend, like it's not all on me. Um, but I live like, so if, if you are looking at the experiences of black people, I'm biracial. Biracial didn't exist when I was a little kid, right? So uh, there was a, there, you know, when you took your standardized test, there was black and there was white. Looked at my skin, I was like, I'm gonna go with black. Uh, and then when I was probably in high school, they added, I think, biracial or multiracial. And at that point, I was like, I, 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 I identify as black, so that's okay. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to keep checking that box for now. Um, so my dad is black. My mom is white. Uh, and so my skin is much lighter uh, than my dad's skin. So that means racism looks different for me. Um, I can pass. So my, I, the way I do my hair is, is part of like, I'm a, I generally am what people call like a safe black person. Like I'm pretty easy to deal with. Um, so it's unusual for someone to be overtly racist towards me. Um, I'm, I'm pretty polite. I'm like small enough that you can intimidate. It's not, there's, there's not a lot of tension in terms of power. Um, so sometimes there's big racism. I've never met my mom's mother because my mom's mom was not comfortable with the fact that my mom married a black man. Uh, I have wonderful grandparents um, on both sides who, who love me well. My mom's mom would say that it wasn't that, but she knows all her other grandchildren and she doesn't know me. Uh, so that's like big racism, right? Um, and then there's, there's what I refer to as small annoying racism. And small annoying racism is the racism that makes you feel like you are losing your mind. So that is, I'm qualified for a job, but man, every person that gets promoted on this team is white and from the South. And so then I have to wonder, okay, you know, does this person not like my style of work? Was I not delivering enough? Man, every other boss I've had thought I was really sharp, but maybe I just haven't connected with this boss. Um, and if this is something that you don't sit at home at night, praying over, wrestling over, calling, in my case, I'm not married, so I call my parents. I'm like, I don't... You don't know if this person's a racist or I don't know if I'm not the right fit for this job. If you don't sit and wrestle with that, that's stuff that isn't a burden that you're carrying and that's a, a racism burden. Um, Russell mentions like where, where you go. Uh, so my dad's family is from Louisiana and for a whole host of reasons, uh, I, I hadn't met him until I was a, a my dad's, dad, that grandpa, until I was an adult. And my mom said, well, why don't we drive? Why don't we drive from North Carolina to Louisiana? It's like a two-day drive. Mama. And I said, <laughs> we're not going to do that. <laughs> and my mom said, well, you know, we could, like, get hotels. And I said, no, no, mom, we're not going to do that. My parents have lived in California for their entire lives. I said, I, there are places in North Carolina where I'm perfectly comfortable driving. There are places in Tennessee where I'm sure it would be fine. 
but I don't have a map for every spot where I'm not certain I can get gas, where I'm not certain what will happen when a, a cop pulls me over, where I'm, uh, there are too many questions. I'm not sure what will happen if my car breaks down and I can't immediately get, get service. What if my cell phone doesn't work in that, re that region? So that's the stuff where no one says, Melissa, here's a map, uh, you turn 16, here's like the places you can drive and here's the places you can't. Uh, but I do remember my dad and uh, my dad's sister, so also black, calling me and telling me, like, these are the things you have to do as a, a young black woman. Um, in Oklahoma, there was a police officer who would routinely uh, ask for sexual favors from, from women he pulled over. And most of the women were prostitutes or drug addicts, and so when they would report it, the police department would brush it off. And... Um, Finally, he does this to a social worker who is in the neighborhoods that he regularly patrols. And so she reports him and she is credible. And what they discover is that there's something like 250 reports from this one police officer who regularly would have women perform sexual favors for him in exchange for, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you off. Um, and I, my, stress is I don't know which cop that is. He doesn't have a different badge. He doesn't have a different car. And so what I have to do is make sure that I never get pulled over. Nothing is ever wrong with my car. Nothing is ever wrong with my driving because I don't know, because there are lots of good police officers who serve and protect, but there's no difference in uniform, in car, in badge between the one that is interested in raping me and the one that isn't. And so that's the stuff that I think people would say like, well, that you didn't, a cop didn't do that to you. Right, but when you, don't, when you get in the car, you don't worry about it. And so that's a big weight to carry all the time everywhere you go. One thing I'll say in light of that, that was she talking about driving? When the police gets behind me, I'm 45 years old. I'm petrified. 10 and 2, license, registration, where you could see them. Because I know a false move for me as a man will get a couple of bullets in me. And it'll be justified. And then a narrative for me, like George Floyd, could come out like, oh, maybe he had some counterfeit money. What in the world does that have to do with it? Right? So, I mean, so these things are always on my mind. I want to challenge the question real quick before we move on. And that is the idea that, that there's people here who have not personally experienced it. Everyone here has personally experienced racism either on one side or the other. You may not have noticed it. That's the, that's the, the reality. And I'll just, I'll, I'll, so you, you brought up the prison system and the new Jim Crow and all that. Think about for, 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 for a quick second, when did the drug war start? When did the war on drugs start? Was that right? Which happens to be when that, that that there's a strange overlap with the civil rights movement, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a remarkable coincidence, isn't it? And then you look at the sentencing of that, and 
the likelihood that, what is it, one quarter of black men uh, at the age of 30 have, have spent some time in either a jail or prison. And you start going, huh. So that's, that's just something, we're all participating in that society to begin with, but there's something even more systemic that everyone here is participating in, whether you see it or not. Does anybody know what the median uh, wealth is of a white household in the United States? So net wealth, so this is your assets versus your liabilities. So you, know, you include your house value and all that in there, if you have a home and all that. Anybody have any idea of what the, net, net, uh, what the median net wealth is? So $170,000, $171,000 as, as of 2016, all right? $171,000. Anybody know what the median household wealth is of a black family in the United States, of a black household? $17,150. Now, I, I'm in the philosophy and religious studies department. I'm not great at math, but I'm pretty sure that that's one-tenth. So the average black household is worth one-tenth of what the average white household is. Now, that's going to impact your access to quality education. That's going to impact your access to neighborhoods where you're not heavily policed, and, you don't, and when you get in your car, you're not a little bit more, more concerned. That's going to impact potential jobs that you're going to have access to later on. Now, that's easy to look at that and be like, man, it's, it, that means it's tough for black people, but I don't see the difference. That's because you're actually advantaged from the difference, right? So you're experiencing, you're personally experiencing racism and the benefits of it every day by the fact of enjoying the advantages that you have that the, the vast majority of people of color in this country don't. And so everybody here personally experiences it. And by the way, the reason for that is not income disparity. It's because of inheritance. Yeah. When you have... 260 years of chattel slavery where you're not allowed to build up and build up property. Well, that's automatically you're behind all the people who have old money. I mean, how many people here could actually go to Boston right now and buy a house or buy, buy, buy even a studio apartment in Boston? Not very many of us. And that's because you have to have like Kennedy money up there to be able to buy something. That tells you about how intergenerational wealth impacts things that is relatable to everybody here, right? But that's what, that's just on a larger, on an easier to see scale of how things are across the board. If you're born black in this country, odds are you're not born with any sort of inheritance. You're starting from ground and you're, you're, start, and you're, you're competing against people who are born on second, third base, right? You're starting at home you, you, and with a strike or two. Right? So that, that in itself, and that's why I wanted to challenge that, that question just a little bit, because everybody here sees it. It's just a matter of whether you notice it. This has been good. Let's do one or two more. Uh, next one. <clears throat> given, recent <clears throat> given recent protests, uh, would you agree with the statement that you are not in favor or you're against it? Sorry. Given recent protests, would you agree with the statement that if you're not in favor, you're against it? Oh, if you're not, uh, sorry, given the recent protests, would you agree with the statement that if you're not in favor of protests, you're somehow against them? Is, I, I know we said we wouldn't like call you out, but this is how we're interpreting your question. Uh, Brian's giving me a thumbs up, so that's the interpretation we're going to go with so that we can, we can answer you. I know you guys are texting, so that makes it more challenging. 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> How did this get back to me? Uh, so I can only speak from my own experience, and we're going to offer like grace to people today. Um, I did not grow up in a household where like we were super protesty. That's not my parents. Uh, if you've met them, it's not me. Um, yeah, California. Uh, yeah, there. So, so this is this is like a nuanced question. I, I would want to understand. I, I get that people. One, it tends to be that people who are not in favor of protests are not in favor of rioting and looting. And it concerns me a lot that people have those things confused. Because a protest, which is people peacefully marching through a city, expressing anger and frustration that's, that's warranted, if you are uncomfortable with that, you've got some soul searching to do, uh, truly. If people walking down the street holding a sign makes you uncomfortable, you should, you should think about why that is. If you can't separate people who are peacefully protesting with looting and rioting, why is that? Because those are two really separate things. Um, and so if, you, if the way that you stand up to racism is by calling elected officials all the time and being like, why aren't the policemen who shot Breonna Taylor in her sleep, why haven't they been charged yet? Um, and you're not a protester because you've got kids at home or you're like, for a hundred different reasons. I'm so cool with that. Like, do whatever activism looks like for you. My concern with this is doing nothing. Oh, oh, by the way, like, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, um, those aren't, a, th that's not doing anything. Like, unless you are, unless you are in Hong Kong or part of, like, the Arab Spring level protests, where those are your organizing platform, posting whichever side is not a thing. Like, I, that doesn't count. Um, so, saying, da-da-da, I, I think this is great, and I've I plan to do nothing other than this Facebook post. Don't bother with the Facebook post because that is meaningless. Um, but also, do show up to be active in the way. I know I'm not answering this. I, I think if you're not in favor of protests, it doesn't necessarily mean you're against it, but I would want to understand what is it that you're doing to, to embrace activism that looks different. And... There's a reason that we're back at protests. I think there's like a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, why do people keep bringing up slavery and Jim Crow? Like those were a long time ago. Um, they were and we still haven't fixed it. We've created new problems in the interim. We have not addressed the problems. Uh, yes, now I make, I think I make 54 cents to the dollar of, a, of, my, of my white male counterparts. That isn't fixed, guys. So yes, we're back at protests. Um, if you did the other activism with who you were voting for and calling your elected officials, and hey, if you are somebody who feels a call to run for office, if you are doing all those things, 
we might not be back at protests. So uh, yeah, that's that's my. That's good. Thanks. Uh, let's do the evangelical church question that's on the. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'll hear from Jason and then from Russell. Actually, uh, one of the first times I met Russell, you were sharing on this topic and sharing some history, so you've got some good insight here. Uh, how does the modern white evangelical church propagate and fit into the history of oppression and racism in the country? Unfortunately, I would say it sits right at the center of, uh, of the history of oppression and racism in this country. Uh, and that's not just in the South, by the way. That's across the country. And if you really want an eye-opening history on this, go and take a look. It's, it's not coincidental that you saw some of the worst racism at this uh, private Christian school. Because if you want to actually, if you want something really eye-opening, go take a look at the history of when these private Christian, when most private Christian schools opened in the United States. Anybody know? What's that? Somebody said it right. Is it? That's right. It's right around the time of desegregating the public schools. So what happened is all these white evangelical churches said, ooh, I don't want my little girl to go to school with a bunch of black boys. So we're going we're gonna to start a church school. We're going to open a church school, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna educate our kids right here. And it wasn't until the late 90s that many of these private Christian schools were mid-90s, late-90s, were, uh, were desegregated, effectively. And many of them still only have white students. So that should tell you right there just something about the, <laughs> the centrality to the whole situation that modern white evangelicalism has, has played. Because that's not, that's not a long time ago, right? That's within this generation that you're looking at people actively making that decision. And if you look at, you know, the, the most common curricula for a lot of those schools, it's Pensacola Christian College, Abeka stuff, and the Bob Jones University stuff. Go and take a look at Bob Jones University's history. Right? You couldn't have interracial dating at Bob Jones University until 2000. Okay? So th this is recent history, right? And this is still going on. And the, the, the reality is that, and this is where I'm going to step on some toes, is that the white evangelical gospel is so shallow and has been so shallow that it has not only not provided good answers to this question of race and racism and all of these things, but it, is, it has actively avoided giving answers to that. Because the answers in the white evangelical church is... Everybody here can probably tell you what, the, what those answers are to these sorts of questions, which is, well, you know, it's all going to go down eventually anyway. We're not here to change the culture, in, in, you know, to change government, to change the, you know, all that. What really matters is winning souls. And it's not a matter of system, you know, let's not worry about the systemic factors. What really matters is we just need to love one another, love Jesus, and win souls. And, and if everybody just prays the prayer, then we're going to get things right. I'm going to tell you right now, that ain't the, that ain't the case. And the gospel, runs, the gospel in, in, in the New Testament runs a lot deeper than that, right? The gospel is a gospel of liberation and freedom. When Jesus heals someone, he's doing more than saying, congratulations, you've now you know, put your faith in me. Now go and enjoy whatever you know, crippled life you have, right? The first thing Jesus does in, in Luke 
is he reads a passage from Isaiah where he says, he proclaims release, right? This is the Jubilee year. This is the Jubilee of Jubilees, and he proclaims release to the captives. He proclaims the the, uh, release of debts. He proclaims freedom to the prisoners and all of these things. And if our gospel isn't about that, then we're not preaching the same gospel Jesus was, and that's a problem, right? So that's where the... The, what, the, 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 the tra- traditional white evangelical church has found ways to make people comfortable with doing nothing and enjoying their, their, their comfortable suburban lives and living as a part of a culture that benefits that suburban life and e- economically and, ever, and otherwise you can enjoy living however you want. That's what, the, that's what that does. And as long as you've confessed Jesus, you can feel, you can, it's just the same problem, by the way, with the social media making those posts, it's a great way to feel good that you've done something, but you've done nothing. So you've prayed the prayer, you're going to church, great. Yeah, but that doesn't do anything, right? It does make you feel better about where you are in life, though, and that's the gospel that very often we see preached. And, it, and so that's why that's been so central, is until we get to the place where the gospel involves radical change in terms of release to the captives and and, uh, you know, a transformation in the real world, we're not preaching the same gospel. And that's why it's been so central. Yeah, so when I think about the modern evangelical church, the first thing I'll say is just look at this administration politically. That's first. And I'm not, I'm not mad at whoever who voted for what, but this is not a dog whistle anymore. You know, he's outright saying it, and he's siding with white evangelicalism. Um, even as he talked, uh, I didn't even see the speeches, but he talked uh, the, the speech yesterday on the 4th because he's contrasting white evangelicals with looters and uh, rioters and, you know, people like that. Anytime you can retweet a guy who says white power, you know, kind of deal. So that's just first. We're talking about modern evangelical, but it goes further. Many of us don't know why there is a black church and white church. Why is it separate? It goes all the way back to the late 1700s. A pastor by the name of Richard Allen, Methodist, he goes to a church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to worship with white brothers and sisters. He's going down to pray. Oh, the leaders, the people in the church say, you can't be down here. You got to go in the balcony. Wait a minute. We're praying to the same God. We're worshiping the same God because this is an issue of the Imago Dei, the very image of God. If I cannot see the image of God in my Hispanic brother, my black brother, my white brother, my Asian brother, then I'm missing something. Again, during that time, black folks were not even seen as fully human. I know it didn't get put in the law until I guess some time later. I don't have my years right, but you're a black man. You can't be with us because you're going to infect, dirty, or whatever that may be. So as a result, they went and started the AME Church, the African American, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Their AME churches around here, I'm sure they are. Um, but that's the inception of this, this, this deal. And it continues. Um, where the white evangelical church, you just talked about it, there's this, been this push of just preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. The black church has never had the luxury of choosing one over the other. Both went hand in hand, and biblically it goes hand in hand. All we got to do is go to Acts chapter 2. After the Holy Spirit 
comes and, 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 and indwells people, you see that, man, people started selling their stuff. Why were they selling their stuff? My brother's sister has a need. I want to make sure that your life, you have what you need physically because not only does Jesus care about my soul, but he cares about how I'm actually living on this earth, right? When you have black churches that say, oh, not only are we going to preach the gospel, whether you agree with their theology or not, because I can say this, we're in this reformed world, and we love to spout total depravity, uh, uh, unlimited, uh, um, what is it, unconditional election, limited atonement. You know, we can go through all of that. I can go to a black church. They'll preach the same thing. It may not sound like ours, but they're going to preach that gospel and say, you know what, let's go and knock on our old sister's door that stays a couple of houses down, and let's see if she has a need. Does she need to get to the doctor? Does she need food? We want to take care of, does she need clothes? I was, uh, well, I used to be on staff with Young Life. Great time. My wife and I, my wife always says she worked for free, which, <laughs> I, you know, this, but, but she was with me. Like, she still, her girls call her today. I'm in touch with some of my guys. I had, I had three guys on specifically. One was, he wasn't anything as far as religion, but I had two Muslims, brothers. I picked them up every day. Coach Russell, come, come, come get us. And, and they lived by themselves. There was no adult supervision. And their clothes were dirty. And, and it's just like they, they smelled. And I'm like, yo, um, let's go to the store. They were hungry. Let, let's, let's go to the store. Let me go buy you some underwear and T-shirts. I used the P card for Young Life. But I'm like, yo, you want me to do ministry with these brothers, but they are hurting. Let me go buy them some food. Let me go get this. Russell, we got a meeting. Russell, stop doing that. Stop doing that. You're spending our money. Now, by right, I wasn't raising nothing. Uh, but again, you call me to do ministry. You want me to go into this inner city community. Now, why am I mentioning that? Because I think that my, 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 my um, superiors were part of the white evangelical church, right? And for them, if you just go and preach the gospel, then you're going to save them. What they were really saying to me, Russell, go preach the gospel to them. They get saved so they can stay out of my community. That's what they were really saying to me. Because when we would bring, my wife, we got countless stories, but it's those kind of things that continue to propagate this, this, this history of oppression and racism. We continue to look at people as the other. No, you are me and I am you as it relates to the things of God. No, there's nothing that inherently divides us anymore in Christ, but that does not mean I lose who I am. I'm still a black man and I'm proud of it. I don't mind throwing my hand up. Like, what is it, Tommy Lee, whatever, the, the dude in 68, the Olympics, the track runner holding his hand up, that got just messed up when he did that because he said something to America that America had to face itself with. And I think the church needs to look itself in the mirror. Because to be honest with you, now this is beautiful, right? But if we really want the things of God, based on Revelation 7 and 9, where one day you and I are going to be singing praises to Jesus next to each other. Now, we want to do it then, but we can't do it now. I need to stop. Um, yeah, that's really good. I know we're going over, so if you need to leave or if you need to uh, get your kids, you know, you can do that. 
Uh, I want to. I'll just end with this, and then again, if you want to talk to them, please ask them questions. We'll just ask. Maybe one. Well, what's one last thing you want to leave with? What we want to say? Encouragement. You know how we can move forward. Yeah, I mean, you can put that up if you want. That. Uh, what do you see as one tangible way we can work toward unraveling, our unraveling systemic racism? It says specifically in education, but just maybe just in general. Everyone, you all three can just close your thought. Uh, I, I, systems, you know, when we start dealing with systems, um, this, this is loaded. I don't have a good answer for it. I do know it needs to be addressed. And I think one thing for me, my wife and I, we are definitely committed to planting Reconciliation Church. We don't know how it's going to look. COVID has, you know, thrown everything off. But if Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail, that's all I need to hear. That's all we need to hear. Jesus, you're winning. So as it relates to that, um, we want to plant, and we want to deal with sin in its proper geography, in its proper setting. So, yes, there's, there's individual sin that needs to be dealt with. Jesus died for sins. There's relational sin, but there's also sy systemic sin. So how do we deal with sin in this proper geography? So we want to deal, address the sin that can permeate even within this institution called church. And how do we begin to unravel some of those things? So I think that's where we're going to start. Uh, this is a hard question. Uh, so I have two things that I would want to say. One, this is a great starting point. Uh, but if this is all that we do as New City, and I don't think it will be, this is not like enough. Like this has to keep being on our minds. This has to keep being on our hearts. Um, Russell said it and I, I said it. This is like, if you're white, this isn't your everyday. If you're a minority in America, this is every day for you. How heavy that weight is every single day varies. Um, there are days when it seems light in the morning and heavy at night and vice versa. Um, so, I'm not asking you to have it be a weight every single day, but don't go through the remainder of the year and think like, well, we had that thing on the 5th of July and so I got it covered. Like you, that's not enough. Um, and so then, then what are the tangible things that you can do toward unraveling systemic racism? I'm a big fan of, of calling out how do we want X space, so whether it's education, the church, uh, my workplace, my community center, how do we want it to look different? So if the city of Raleigh, and I'm, I'm not born and raised Raleigh and I should know this number, what are the demographics of, are, of the city of Raleigh? What does it look like when I go out of this place if I go downtown? Versus what does it look like on Sunday morning? Do I want those things to be a better reflection of each other? If the answer is yes, then what do, what's the work I need to do? If I don't put down a number, it's like goals that you have at work. They don't let you just say like, well, you know, whatever revenue number you hit in, in 2020, that's great. Like they put this product's going to make this much money, this product's going to make this much money, and then we're going to make however many million dollars to, to run our budget. If we want to look different, then we set a number and we set that goal. Um, and so then then that starts to say, okay, then how do we achieve that? So then what are the steps I start to take? Um, but that, that to me is a really helpful way is making it specific um, and making it something you can measure so that you can make a change. Because just vaguely saying, you know, we want to look like the church 
in Revelation, while that is lovely, that doesn't really make a, a change in your actions um, on a on a day to day basis. So the, the, this is this is difficult, as as both of you said, because it's dealing with systems, um, and we could talk about all sorts of government policy and all that, and I'm happy to talk about that stuff in another context, but. The thing is, right now, we're sitting in a church, right? We're sitting in the body of Christ. And the real question is, what needs to change in how we live our lives as part of the body of Christ? So we need to stop. I think that, we, that it, it's important to, to, to push for certain things to change governmentally and all sorts of things. Policy needs to change in lots of areas. But if we're looking to government to solve these problems, we're looking into the wrong place. This has to start in the body of Christ. It has to start with our change in behavior and our change in how we live our lives and our lifestyles that actually feed into the system. And so the first thing, the, 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 the one tangible thing, starts with our pocketbooks. Starts with how, where's, where are we spending our money and how? Am I building my McMansion empire and making sure that, you know, I'm propagating, you know, continued wealth in my own family? Or am I turning my, and this is why I think it's, it, you went exactly to the right spot in Acts 2. If we want this to change, we need to look a lot more like Acts 2, where we start saying, okay, look, here's my pocketbook. Here's, here's my debts and liabilities. Let's get to where we're living as debt-free and living as, you know, minimal as we can and where that is for different families is different. But to really actively consider, where am I spending my money? And what's that supporting? And can, is, there now, you know, is there a way I can get to where I'm not in debt so that now I can take whatever excess I have and contribute it to someone else who, who doesn't have? And change the, the pursuit of all of the wealth and all of the stuff that a lot of white evangelical Christianity tells us it's okay. But Jesus did say it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than to go through, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And so the first most tangible thing is to take a look at our budgets and say, where can this change and where does it need to change in order for our, our group collectively, not just this, this church, but other churches as well, to begin to shatter that system from the bottom up. And I think that's, that, that's the one tangible thing for me. Well, as we end, I lied real quick. I think one of the big dividers on this, a misunderstanding, has to do with this next question about the flag. I just, wanna, I just want one of you to answer it, uh, or maybe you both can. I know this is a loaded question, but it shows how kind of our divide between majority culture and minority culture. Can you put that, that flag question up? As a person of color, how does the Confederate flag make you feel? I hate it. For me, it's terrible. Because it doesn't, uh, whether it's somebody's heritage, it's no heritage for me. That flag represents oppression. And I'm from Mobile, Alabama. I'm from down there. I'm from a state, a southern state, where you can drive down any interstate and you can see that flag flying. So they, it has no, no feeling of, man, look at us. And I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes the American flag doesn't feel that way. Um, because like I, did, I couldn't really celebrate July the 4th because that was not my freedom. That, that was, it was not. My people were in bondage. And I do know who he was, the last slave in my family. He's buried in uh, some land that we have. And I stand over his grave and I just look, man, I don't even know what life was like for you. 
except that you were in perpetual bondage. You born in bondage and you died there. So when I look at the Confederate flag, it honestly, and I hate it, I, I don't know who feels, but I'm just, for me, how it makes me feel, I don't even want to see it. Yes. Yeah, I mean, so I'm from California, which means this is different. There's no one in California for whom the Confederate flag is part of their heritage. So all it is, is white supremacy. That, that's just a note to me that I am not interested in you. Whether or not that is your intention is not what you're asking me. You're saying, how do I feel? What I immediately know is I'm not safe in this space. This person, and, and for those who want to tell me that it's about states' rights, uh, look at the rights that the states wanted, which was to keep black people enslaved. So you're, you're, you're on the correct track. There is a right that those states are interested in, and it is keeping black people enslaved. Um, there's no other country in the world that lets the team that led an uprising and lost keep flying their flag. You don't see that in other countries where they have civil wars. They don't say, ooh, let's keep, that's, let's keep flying that flag of dissension and discord and anger and hatred that led to so much bloodshed. Let's just like keep flying that, because that's cool. You know, somebody for five years was flying that. That's not what it's about. Um, I, I like listening to podcasts. I'm going to recommend a podcast to you all. It's called Uncivil. Uh, it tackles symbols of the Confederacy and why we think um, why we think that this is heritage, why we think it's about states' rights. Um, this all comes from from uh, the Jim Crow South. Like not, none of this comes immediately after the Confederacy falls. All of this happens around the time that the documentary Birth of a Nation comes out. So it's like the the 1920s-ish, 1910s, 1920s. Um, so, so listen to that and see if you still feel the same way of like this is pride and heritage when someone has broken down where this came from because it isn't, it doesn't happen right after the Confederacy falls. So for me, it's, it's a white supremacist symbol that is meant to tell me that I should drive quickly away from that place. Yeah, so as we close, again, we talk about the mark. Uh, the, the measure of a disciple is, is not how much you know, but how well you love. And if you had a family member who came to you and said, I know you don't mean anything by this, but when you do this thing, this is how it makes me feel, you probably would change that action. And so maybe for you, for, for, my, for many of us that are white, the Confederate flag doesn't mean much to us. But if you have brothers and sisters who are saying, this is what it means to me, what does it look like out of love to change what we can do to serve those better? So would you give them a hand for being honest and sharing with us today? Thank you.